because we weren't talking. And that's what, that what it was. So, hey, Atma Safnauer, correct? Am I pronouncing Sa it? Safnauer, the Z silent. It was added by the Hungarians when my grandfather moved over from Romania, which was Hungary at the time. Uh, but it doesn't belong there. Um, but it's there anyway. So I guess it belongs now. Well, thank you for joining and joining us on Happy at Work. And I got to give you credit. You're a man with a lot of patience because when that happens to me, oh my God, I, you can see my face turns red. I'm like, why isn't this working? What's going yeah, but, on here? But if you do that to your IT department, then they're not going to be happy at work. <laughs> my IT department now is my son who's home from college. So, ah, so that turns out- That's nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I usually have him in the background because- I'm an idiot when it comes to technology, and I always do something stupid. So he, I, I yeah. get him around to watch. Finley at home is is our IT department as well. Even though I studied electrical and computer engineering, he's still way above beyond me. Uh, well, I'm I really uh, appreciate Alejandro. Do you mind it, it, introducing everyone just so I know who the audience is? Absolutely. So first of all, this is Odmar Safnauer, CEO and Team Principal of Aston Martin Cognizant F1 Team. Uh, Odmar, this is Professor Michael McCarthy from Harvard University and Holt Business School. Uh, Dr. Tessa Misiasek from Harvard University and Holt Business School. And Jack Kelly from Forbes Magazine. Hi, everyone. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, no, listen, it, it's, uh, it's highly coincidental that uh, I think this Friday, Finley will apply to Harvard for the early decision, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully, hopefully he'll get in and uh, he'll uh, he'll take a class or two from you. We'd love that. <laughs> Jack, uh, you want to start us off? Go, yeah, so go, go ahead, Jack. And uh, it, this is really, really uh, appropriate for me because my entire uh, management ethos is making um, making this place a good place to work. Uh, th this yeah, is what great. I've always tried to do. And I think this is why in the past we've punched above our weight uh, in Formula One. Um, and I'll give you some ins. Well, anyway, I don't know if they're insights. It's just uh, my philosophy and what, what I do here. That's terrific. Because this is what the whole ethos about this podcast is, Happy at Work, is how we can empower workers, You know how we could build trust, how we put positivity into the workplace. And I imagine what you do, boy, it takes all those things to have a winning team. So I thought maybe Michael could kind of share some questions and Tessa about, you know, how you do it and how you, you know, why you're so successful. Sure. So Omar, just as a little bit of background, when Tessa and I started teaching the positive workplace at Harvard for the executive ed program, the one thing that we had said to ourselves when we did approach professional development to propose the course is it was based on evolution that generous species throughout time, they survive and thrive and selfish species go extinct. And even though we could have a debate about whether humans are generous or not, they actually do qualify as being generous because we have teams and teamwork that if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have buildings, we wouldn't have Zoom. So what we'd like to do with the show is create the evolution of the workplace by being generous, which is giving information and receiving information so that we can all survive and thrive. So that's the basis of the show. And I'm gonna put it back to Jack. He'll start us off with a few questions that we have in the brief period of time. And Jack, let's begin. So, you know, I started binge watching the Netflix special 
and you're great on it. How do you Thanks. how do you, how do you keep a positive workforce? What I you know what to be fair, I really didn't know much about Formula One till till I started diving into it, and I didn't realize you have all these moving parts. How do you keep everybody together? How do you make sure you you know you could trust the guys who are putting on the tires? How you can trust the mechanics? How you can make sure everybody's working and collaborating together when I don't know everyone might have their own kind of self interest. Yeah, so one thing I, I didn't, what you say, Michael, kind of makes sense to me, and it's the first time I've heard it that, uh, yeah, collaboration uh, uh, gets you to the next generation and you don't become extinct, but if you're a bit selfish, then you might. Um, um, I have a, a, a famous biologist that uh, lives two doors down from me, uh, Professor Dawkins at, at Oxford. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's written The Selfish Gene and uh, a few other things. But um, the one thing that I did here at the very beginning when I got to this place was I had meetings with all the departments. And one question I asked everybody was, well, department by department, do you think humans are selfless or selfish? And I asked them that question. And I, I got, well, I mean, there's only two answers, really, <laughs> selfish or selfless. But it was all over the place. A lot of people thought selfish. Some people thought selfless. But, and then we had a philosophical discussion that in teams, you can't be selfish. And we are all about team. Uh, you can't win in Formula One uh, if you only have, even if you have the best drivers and you don't have a good car and the car comes from team, you're not gonna win. And you can have the best car and not the best drivers and you're not gonna win. You've gotta put it together at every little aspect of Formula One to win. Now we've only won once. So you can say, well, that's because you guys are a bit selfish, but it's not because of that. It's because of the resources that we've had in the past. And as a matter of fact, with the little resources we've had, we've really outperformed where we should have been. And I think that comes from team and uh, having a, a team that's high performing means in the workplace, you have to have psychological safety. And, and psychological safety is you are happy to make mistakes without having the repercussions of them. And you got to say to yourself, well, I mean, how often are you going to be able to make mistakes without repercussions? You can't repeat them, but you have to be able to learn from them and then not make the same mistake again. And so often, if you don't have psychological safety in the workplace, People won't take the risks necessary to win because they're afraid of making those mistakes. So the first and foremost thing that we do here is to drive psychological safety. And one thing you need to do that is the leaders, not just me, but because we have a lot of managers here and then subgroups underneath those managers, when they make mistakes, they have to raise their hand and say, look, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. This is my fault. And uh, but it won't happen again, or I'll do this differently, or next time I'll know. And when the leaders do that, then everyone underneath says, Ooh, if they're doing that and they're okay, then I should be okay. And that's one small thing that we do here is we don't finger point, we're in it together, we're all pulling in the same direction, and we don't stab each other in the back because somebody made a mistake. Psychological safety. Um, so that's one thing that I've, I've always promoted here. And that means you take risks sometimes. And from taking risks, you, you win sometimes. And when you win because you've taken those risks, you know how to repeat it, minimize the risk, and get the same result. 
So Atmar, this is Tess. I, and thank you so much again for being here. I So I really appreciate what you said about psychological safety as I've really dug into that research in the past. Um, certainly creating an environment where you, people can feel free and encouraged to take risks and to know that they can learn from failure. But part of that formula is trust, right? Like where people feel that they can take those risks because they trust that, you know, the outcome will be that they won't be punished, but rather that they can learn from their mistakes. But also, how do you develop that level of trust, whether it's working within the organization? And then certainly, if you think about the team, right, and, and the, the amount of trust that's probably involved in every aspect of what you do, how do you create that environment, that culture of trust? So the, the smaller the team, the easier that happens, because trust is learned. Um, it's not something that you can just say, oh, look, trust me, I'll do this. It's more your actions, not your words. And that happens over time. It, it, you know, I did this and the boss did this to me. Yeah, he said he wasn't going to punish me. You know, like I tell my son, just listen, the most important thing in our household is, uh, is the truth. So if you tell me the truth, there will be no punishment. And I can say that over and over, but when, you know, or my daughters, when they did something they shouldn't have, and then they actually tell me and I don't punish them, and you repeat that, then suddenly there's trust. And the same thing happens here. And, and you know, I, I always say in treating people within the organization, we're all people, although we work for a Formula One team, you should treat them with respect for what they know and don't chastise them for what they don't. So first of all, respect everyone for what they know. And then it's just fundamental things that you probably should have been taught at home, not in a Harvard executive MBA. Uh, be honest with people. You know, that, that should come from the home, not from you shouldn't be teaching people to be honest. And have high integrity. You know, and if you have high integrity, honesty, treat them with respect. Before you know it, you get that trust and, and your actions and your actions. And uh, there are many, many times where, and I've, all, I've told all my senior people here, we've got to make this a good place to work. So I don't know what you call it, but it's probably not a good place to work. It's something similar. Uh, what is it that you call it? Oh, when you're working in a place where you don't want to work? No, no, no. Um, Oh, positive uh, workplace, you mean? Positive workplace, yeah. Yes. So I didn't call it positive workplace. I, I just always said, we've got to make this place the best place to work. And there are many times, and if you ingrain that in your senior management, because I can't make every decision here, and, and I don't. They make decisions too. But if that's ingrained in them, there are oftentimes where you make decisions on other employees, and they think, you know what? If this is really going to be a good place to work, I should decide this instead of this. So, and it happens. So it sounds to me, Omar, that you're already running the positive workplace. We just didn't have that, that label. And when you mentioned psychological safety, that is, that is the foundation of a positive workplace. And my next question is, it's based on the generosity model, where we're going we're gonna to give a goodie and we're going to get a goodie. Uh, so what is one of your favorite things that you do at your organization that really creates a positive workplace that you'd be willing to share with the audience where they might try it in their organization. So here, here's the thing that I used to do here and at other places where I work. Um, and 
if the place, we have 600 employees here. We used to have 280. Um, so with a group of three, four, 500 people, you can do it. But if, if you're in an organization where you have 40,000, 50,000, it's harder. But what I used to do uh, in the mornings is in the old days, it was a Diet Coke, but you know now it's, uh, it's sparkling water. So I used to get a sparkling water and I would walk around in the factory and just have a chat with people. And I would ask them, how did your son's cricket match go this weekend? And I would remember. Um, and, and I didn't do it just for effect. You know, I genuinely, want, genuinely wanted to know, how did he do? I know he plays county cricket. Did they win? Did they win? Spend two, three minutes. Uh, how's your daughter's swimming party? You know, I know that uh, she felt a little bit uncomfortable in a bathing suit because she's 15 and there are going to be boys there. And you told me this last week. How, how did it go? Oh, it all went well. Um, and you just get to know people and you do it for an hour a day and you get to know them from their home life, what they're doing, not just at work. And you ask. And before you know it, that trust comes in, that positive work, workplace comes in. It's a good place to work. The boss cares about me and my family and, and what I'm up to. And it's sprinkling that. For me, the CEO, it's sprinkling that magic dust or whatever it is on a few people every day. And they really, really appreciate it. So that's one, one thing among many that I'll share with you. That one's amazing. And you were, I believe you were doing that before the research came out to support it, which was research by Isaac Prilotensky on mattering that you made them feel like they mattered. And when people feel like they See, matter, they, they dive in. I, I haven't read anything. The, probably the last organizational behavior class I took was at the University of Detroit in 1988. And I can barely remember apart from, I know I took an organizational behavior class, that, that was it. And the, the only thing I remember from that was that groups of people will uh, uh, behave a lot differently than individuals. Out of that whole class, the whole semester, that's all I remember. However, this kind of stuff that I'm telling you is empirical. It's what I live and it's what I think is right and it's what I do. And then I get feedback that, yeah, that is right. I don't always get it right, but it, this is all empirical stuff. So it's good to hear that others have actually done research and uh, you're telling me that, oh yeah, that, that's great. I started doing this in 1998 is when I started walking around. In 1998, I found myself as the operations director of British American Racing. I had 185 employees reporting to me, not directly, but through my direct reports. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm gonna get to know every one of them. And I used to walk around for an hour in the morning with my Diet Coke, talking to as many as I could. And not only that, I learned a lot as to what was going on uh, on the shop floor, um, which was another great reason to do it. You know, I, I knew then in the morning as much as my managers knew. And if there was a problem, they would tell me and I'd say, hey, you know, we got to sort this out. I, I love it. Did Thank this, you. Did this come to you just automatically, intuitively, or did you have experiences where you, you saw maybe other leaders do things, they, you cringe and say, hey, I have to change my style? So here, I'll, I'll tell you how it came to me. Um, no, it, it, it wasn't automatic. So I was a young engineer working at Ford Motor Company. And uh, um, I wanted to leave engineering and go into product planning. 
Um, and so I went to my boss and I said, look, I've got an opportunity to move into product planning. Um, and he said, no. He said, why would I leave, let all my best engineers go uh, out of my department? Then I'll end up with a bunch of not the best ones, the second best ones or third best ones. So I'm sorry you can't go. So I went and told the product planning manager who wanted me to go and, and work in product planning. I said, look, I'm sorry, I can't come. Frank won't let me go. He won't let his best engineers leave. Uh, and he said, how can I let all my best engineers leave my department? I'll be stuck with the not so good ones. Logical. And, and this fellow, Paul was his name, said, look, I'm, what I'm going to do for you, Otmar, is I'm going to give you a promotion because at Ford Motor Company, the um, the rule was, if you're promoted, your manager can't stop you, which kind of makes sense. If it was a lateral move, he can stop you. So he said, I'm going to promote you. He can't stop you. I said, great. So I went back to Frank and said, Frank, I'm leaving anyway. I got a promotion, so I'm leaving your group. So when I went to Paul, I said, Paul, I told him, why Frank was going to stop me. I said, Frank says, if I let all my good engineers go, I'm going to be stuck with the not so good ones. In my department, I can't have that happen. And Paul says to me, you know what I do? He said, all my best planners I promote out of my group. The best guys spend two, three years with me, they get a promotion out. And he says, I've got a reputation of promoting the best planners. And guess what? For everyone that leaves, I got 10 good ones knocking at my door wanting to come to me. So that's when I learned, I was 24 years old. And that's when I thought, you know what? Make it a good place to work, not just internally to Ford, but make it a good company to work for. And everybody will be knocking on your door that realizes that's a good place to work. That's a great policy now because so many people are leaving because they don't have growth opportunities. So to say that, hey, you're gonna grow here, I, th I think it's brilliant. I love the fact that it, what you're saying gives people the courage to promote people up because they, there could be a line out the door of people that want to work with you because you have that reputation. I think that's great. You have that reputation. So, so when I came into Formula One, I thought, right, every Formula One team, everybody wants to work at them. What's going to distinguish one from the other? You know, there's seven of them in England, five of them within a radius of 10 miles. So why work here versus there? Is it pay? Um, you know, we all pay about the same. Is it the 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 potential to win? That's a big one for us. So everybody wants to win because the value of winning is high. And uh, you know, it's nice to go to the pub and say, "Ah, oh, we just won another race on Sunday," and we all go to the same pubs and you finish seventh. Well, that's not great. You know, everybody wants to win. But so I, I was thinking, how can you distinguish yourself? And, and when you're not winning, like we weren't winning, the best thing you can do is make sure that it's a great place to work. And then even though you're not winning, people will want to come. And there's only two, really two Formula One teams on the grid of 10 that are happy. Those who are winning, and it's usually one. And then those who are punching above their weight is exceeding expectations. So if you exceed expectations, everyone's happy too. Well, we didn't expect you to do this well, and you did this well, then you have a sense of pride. So it's it's those two things. But I've always, always, always said, 
make it a good place to work, you'll be able to attract the best people. That's, I mean, that's wonderful. One of the questions though that I have in- um, And I bet you Alejandro didn't even know any of this. So what a, <laughs> what a, what a perfect, uh, what a perfect match. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Um, but along those same lines, you know, when, when you do have those moments when you aren't winning the race or, you know, I think also in the last couple of years with the pandemic, there's been a lot of uncertainty. People are unsure of their futures. Um, how do you build that level of resilience in your, in your workers? Are there, is there anything more tactical that you do uh, they, so that the workers feel secure and they feel resilient and they stay loyal, even if you aren't on that winning streak. Uh, again, I think it, it's it's uh, building the trust. Um, it, it's how you treat them. It's being honest and respectful. I'll, I'll tell you a, a small, small story. Uh, we in three, three years ago, uh, 2018, went bankrupt here. I don't know if you knew that, but we were uh, we were Force India, and our owners uh, ran into some financial troubles. Two of the owners, as a matter of fact, are part of a Netflix uh, uh, documentary called Bad Boy Billionaires. So there's only three bad boy billionaires in that series, two of which own this team um, at the same time. So you can do yourself a favor and watch bad boy billionaires you, you'll love it and, and you'll see one of the owners who hired me um uh force india which is the the this team uh prior to becoming aston martin and racing point features in in his segment of bad boy billionaires um uh, but anyway um uh, my point is we went bankrupt three years ago and at the time of bankruptcy you can imagine um the nervousness of the employees who had children in school, mortgages to pay, car payments to make, and the best employees received job offers from competitive teams because the, comp the competitors knew we were having financial problems. We were struggling paying our uh, uh, supply base, so and they all talk. Uh, we were asking for money early from Formula One. And they all talk, so everybody knew. We didn't lose one employee through the bankruptcy process. And that's because they trusted when I said to them, hang in there, we'll be okay. Not one left. The year of bankruptcy, twice I had to use my own funds for a short time to pay the salaries. So I took money out of my own bank account and I paid the salaries so that everybody would get paid, pay their mortgages. And they knew that. They knew that my team principal, my CEO, not his company, risked a significant amount of money, uh, for me it was anyway, um, just to make sure that we were okay. And once they learn that, then they go to battle for you. And they stick with you. I love it. Uh, Otmar, in, in the spirit of uh, giving a goodie and getting a goodie, we'd like, to, we'd like to give you a goodie. And we're curious, are there any initiatives or goals that you're currently working on that aren't in place yet that you would like to do that perhaps we could help you out with some research or other people that we've, uh, that we've spoken to? Anything on the wish list? Give me uh, more than like 10 seconds to think of that, if you don't mind. 
Okay. And then uh, through Alejandro, I'll get back to you. Okay. Because it, it sounds like you guys, and rightfully so, and girls have done a lot of research and, and, and read about this. And I'm sure you know about this topic much more than I do. All I'm sharing with you is how I run the place, really. Beautiful. Well, one thing that we did want to do is generosity, just as a thank you for, for coming on to the show, is Tessa and I would like to give your organization a free one-hour positive workplace webinar on Zoom, kind of like positive right. psychology greatest hits. Uh, bring everybody. No, We'd love to help. That would be really, really good. And uh, why don't we do it for our senior managers? Sure. Okay. And uh, yeah, that, that would be, or the other thing I could do, we use uh, a, a consultant here as well that uh, he goes around to our most senior leadership team and talks to them for about an hour, you know, what are your concerns? And, and he, he's really, really, really good too. And uh, I, I remember when uh, he also does some work for Mercedes when they recommended him to us. And, and I thought, you know what, I, I know all this stuff. I don't need to talk to Simon. Uh, but once I did talk to him, I, I, I realized I was completely wrong. And, uh, you know, he knows some things that I don't. And it was complimentary to, to that. And maybe Simon can sit in on that, too. Sure. That would be, uh, that would be really good. We would love to have that opportunity. Uh, Jack, in our last three minutes, would you like to wrap us up? Yeah. yeah you know, uh, do, I know you have a hard stop. Can I ask you one, one other question, though, before we head out? We're talking about managing people. How are you able to deal with the bankruptcy in terms of managing up with top, you know, the top executives so, who are going through this crisis? Yeah, so managing up for me was managing the, the ownership that we're going yeah. through this crisis. So it was, um, it was difficult at times, uh, but again, the, the most important thing is honesty. Now, you got to be honest with them and just say, you know, look, there's 380 people. We had 405 people at the time. There's 405 people here, and and their livelihoods are at risk. You know, you, you, it, it's important. And um, I still have a, an excellent relationship with BJ, uh, who was the owner at the time. Um, Sahara Shri, I don't see that much anymore because I think he is stuck in India and BJ is stuck in England, and I live in England, but I still see BJ. We have a great relationship, even though those were tough times. That's great. That's great. And, you know, I love everything you're saying. It's, 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 this is such a great podcast because you articulate so clearly for this time period where there's a war for talent, you know, great resignation, people are just disenchanted with their jobs. And you're walking through just a great blueprint what companies could do to empower workers, to make them feel better, to put positivity in the workforce. And I hope you're okay with this too. I'd love to write an article about it as well. I've been co I, I don't know if you know, I'm taking a lot of notes because I love just the bullet points of what you're offering because it makes so, it's, it sounds so rational. It makes so much sense, but unfortunately so many companies don't do it. Yeah. And the other thing I do and not everybody does, uh, and unfortunately that's changing a little bit here is uh, I don't micromanage. You know, although I'm an engineer, I was a racing car driver, I owned a racing team, uh, I have an MBA, I don't micromanage. Um, the fact that I raced myself, I think I get respect from uh, a group of the individuals here. The fact that I have an engineering degree, I get respect from another group of individuals here, um, but I don't micromanage them. 
So I think the best thing to do is hire the best people. They themselves will have a, a much deeper understanding at, at, at their uh, uh, at their own job than I do. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I understand Bernoulli's equation in aerodynamics. However, I'm not going to talk to an aerodynamicist about about uh, race car aerodynamics. They're going to know it much more than I do. So my philosophy again is. Hire the best guys that you can. And the reason you can hire them is because it's a good place to work and then let them get on with it. If they have conflict or something they need help with or a decision they would like me to input on, my door is always open. Come see me. But I will not micromanage you. If there is a problem within the organization and it's evident because we're, you know, it's not all rosy all the time then it might require some micromanagement and some deeper understanding and some direction from the CEO. That I will do, but I won't stay there forever. Try to fix it and then move on. That's amazing. Mike, Tessa, I think you could get a new professor down the road. Oh yeah. <laughs> how, how terrific would he be? 